Good morning. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me here this morning. My name is Keith Patman. I serve with uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators. And, uh, well, I've been serving since 1982. In uh, 1987, my wife and I, with our two children, moved to Cameroon, which is on the west coast of Africa, west central Africa. Um, and we lived in the town of Ombessa and learned and worked in the local language there, which is called Nugunu, one of 279 languages in that uh, little country the size of the state of California. My kids loved growing up in an African village. They still talk about it, even now as adults, with kids of their own. And uh, my daughter actually got to go back uh, when I went for the uh, dedication of the New Testament in Nugunu in 20, uh, 2017. She had not been back there in 22 years, and that little girl on the left, who was her best friend, was now all grown up, and they, they, they uh, reunited, and just, uh, she, she was just so excited to be there. I serve now from the United States, based here in the U.S., um, and serving Bible translation teams throughout the west and central parts of Africa, the countries where French is the language of wider communication. And I'll be sharing a little bit more about that as we go along. Um, but let me introduce you first to William Cameron Townsend. In 1934, he started what would become uh, the greatest Bible translation movement in history. Um, he started a little community of missionaries uh, to learn linguistics in order to be able to analyze unwritten languages. He kind of got this vision as he served as a young person in Guatemala and met people who spoke languages that weren't even written in which the Bible did not exist. They had no access to the scriptures in Spanish, which is what he was uh, teaching and preaching in. And so he got this vision for translating the scripture into all these unwritten languages. SIL was the uh, little training school he began. It stood for Summer Institute of Linguistics. Now it stands for SIL. Uh, and out of that grew Wycliffe Bible Translators as a way to bring uh, the, the national church, the sending church in and uh, send missionaries out and pray for them and support them. And many other organizations have now uh, started up, some of them affiliated with Wycliffe and SIL, others independent, including hundreds in countries all over the world where they are uh, producing their own national translators. Um, uh, Cameron Townsend, by the way, is the one in the middle in that picture. <laughs> when you look at that, you may think, well, I could never go to a people who are so strange and distant from me and learn a language like that and translate the Bible. Well, maybe not, but what I really want you to hear this morning is that you are a Bible translator. Um, it's for all of us as Christians, and I don't want this just to be an, an informative message about a certain type of, of missionary activity, but I want you to go home really with that in mind. So let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it in the language that speaks to our hearts and that we're so blessed by it. And we want to lift up to you uh, those in the many languages around the world who are still waiting to hear your word. We pray that you will connect us more firmly with them and help us to reach out to them. And we join 
in worshiping you this morning with all our brothers and sisters around the world who are already singing your praises today in languages around the world. Thank you for making us a part of that great multitude. And we pray that you will guide us uh, through your word and through your spirit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's think a little bit about how you are a Bible translator. Can everybody read that on the screen? Good, because I can't, but I've got it right here. Um, So this is from Paul's letter to the Colossians. And could we read this responsively? Uh, I'll read the lines in regular print, if you'll read with me the lines in bold print. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. So you may remember the old saying, you're the only Bible that some people may ever read. And that's what this passage from Paul is really all about. That's why this instruction of his is so important. This is what God wants us to look like as his people, his church, and as individual Christians, uh, so that our lives and our life as a community speak Uh, compellingly and beautifully to the watching world. And of course, we do fail, don't we, uh, in carrying that out? But we should always be striving through the uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to be that kind of people, to be that kind of church, uh, so that others read in us, as as they read us like a book, and see the character of Christ in us and the love of God. In verse 16, uh, he tells us, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. That is, let the word of Christ be our very DNA, uh, the essence of our life. So his truth and grace shine out generously. That word richly could be translated generously uh, from our lives as the church and as individuals. That's what the calling of every Christian to be a Bible translator really means. We translate God's message to those around us who are watching. Uh, and I'm going to share a little bit more t- this morning about the more literal sense of being a Bible translator. And I want you to know that even though we, yes, we all are Bible translators in that sense of letting Christ's message shine out through our lives, who knows, God may be calling some of you to be Bible translators in the more literal sense. Um, So you will find either on your seat, you may be sitting on an opportunity of a lifetime right now, uh, either on your seat or somewhere near you, maybe you guys might not have them, there's some up front here, uh, a little brochure. And if you look on the boring side of it, there's a whole list of all kinds of skills and uh, backgrounds and life experience that can all be used in Bible translation, believe it or not. So uh, think about that. People serve from their home countries as well as by going uh, to, to distant countries. 
And there are more uh, things on the table just outside the door here, so help yourself. All right, so we might ask, why translate the Bible? Um, Let's kind of think about it backwards from the end of history, from what God's great redemption story from the Garden of Eden onward is all culminating in. And that is this scene that John portrays for us around the throne of God in heaven. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from God, our God, who sits on the throne, and from the Lamb. So people from every language are going to be there surrounding the throne of God and praising him. We'll be among them. And here are all these other people from all these other language communities around the throne with us in heaven. But many of those languages still don't even know the name of Jesus, still don't even have a single verse of God's word. So if this is what God's redemption story is all moving toward, we need to be sure that everybody can hear Uh, the message of God, the gospel in the language that speaks to their heart, the language that they understand most clearly. And so let's take a quick look at a little video here that'll help us understand about those who still don't have God's word. We've become accustomed to a world where all our needs are met where nearly everything we could ever want is literally at our fingertips. Food, water, shelter, clothing. We take some things for granted. For us, they've always been there. But what if we didn't have these things? How would it affect our daily lives? It's the same with the Bible. It's our guiding light, showing us the only way to live in a right relationship with God. But what if it wasn't there? What would our lives be like without the Bible? For millions of people in the world, this is still their daily reality. There's not a single word of scripture translated into a language they can clearly understand. That's why Wycliffe exists. At this moment, all around the world, we're working with local churches and communities to speed the light of truth to people still waiting. Because when people get the Bible in their language, they can know the life-giving truth of the good news. They can fully grasp who God is and what Jesus has done for them. They can experience the hope and transformation of God's Word. It's a movement of global proportions, and we won't stop until every person on the planet can access the Bible in a language and format they can clearly understand.
You may have noticed some people signing the Bible. Um, we just celebrated a couple weeks ago the dedication of the entire Bible in American Sign Language, the first whole Bible uh, in American Sign Language. And um, I learned that there are about 350 more sign languages around the world that still need scripture, so that's part of it. So here are some statistics, um, and these are always changing, but the latest figures are about 7,378 known languages throughout the world. Surprisingly, only 717 of those languages actually have a whole Bible, and of course, we're among those in English. Uh, Other uh, languages have the New Testament or portions of Scripture, maybe a book or two of of the Bible. Um, But when you take all the languages left out of that picture, there are at least 1,892 of those remaining languages that we know for sure uh, will need a translation. So there's still plenty of work to be done. And some people ask me, um, well, why not teach them to speak a language where there is a Bible? You know, if there's if they're in an area like, we use French in the parts of Africa where I work, and a lot of people are bilingual in French. Actually, most Africans are multi-multilingual, but French in in the parts of Africa where I work is the language of wider communication that most people use. Even if you do have access to scripture in another language, it doesn't always touch your heart the way hearing it in your own language would. But for many, many people, They just don't have access at all to another language. And think about it, would you, if you didn't know Jesus, and somebody told you there's this person named Jesus that you need to know about, and and you need to get right with God by knowing the story of how Jesus came to provide salvation. Um, And here, it's in this book that's written in Greek. Um, Can you learn Greek? And, And then you'll be able to read this. Well, yeah, some of us do learn Greek, and it's a wonderful, rich source of understanding the truth of God's word, but how many people who don't know God at all would take the trouble? And how many of us, even if we did want with all our hearts to know the Lord, would, uh, and, and we did study Greek, would really be able to grasp as much as if we heard it in our own language. So it's important uh, for people to hear it in what we call the language of the heart, the mother tongue. I'll share with you the story. Oh, sorry, let me read this first because this is really why we need to translate the Bible, because how can people call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go to them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. So here's a little story about the impact of the word of God in the mother tongue. This is Leonard Boliochi. I had the privilege of knowing him for most of the time I lived in Cameroon and of working with him and his translation team uh, to help them finish their New Testament. But for many, many years, over 35 years, Leo was in this as a labor of love, working a lot of that time on his own because he wanted so much for the Yambeta people to uh, have the word of God in their own language. He suffered a lot. Um, The first time I ever met him was when my family and I arrived on the SIL campus in Yaoundé, Cameroon uh, for our very first time. And we got there at night, it was just after dark, and we stepped onto the campus and 
outside of one of the apartments, there were all these Cameroonians seated around on the lawn, crying and wailing, and some of them rolling around on the ground in uh, Cameroonian mourning tradition. And I learned that Leonard's son had just been killed a few hours earlier in a motorcycle accident, and they were showing their grief. And Leo went through many other very uh, terrible losses and um, really worked hard and made a lot of sacrifice over those 35-plus years uh, to complete the New Testament. But he tells the story of what kept him going all that time. And it was very early on when he was just doing this on his own. And he went to church one Easter Sunday, and in his pocket he had some handwritten pages on which he had translated the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he asked the priest if he could get up that morning and read the story in Yambeta instead of in French. So he had permission to do that. He stood up and began to read this story. And the further he read, the more he noticed around the congregation, the older women in particular began to just weep. And after the service, they all came rushing up to him. And they said, Leonard, where did you get that story? We've never heard that before. And he said, well, of course you've heard it. We, we read this every Easter in church, and we hear it many other times during the year. And they said, no, we've never heard that before. We never knew God loved us that much. And it was because they heard it in their heart language. Now, I've got to say, the older women are the generation that was never educated in French. When they were children of school age, uh, it was under the colonial times, and, and most families couldn't send the daughters to, to school. They could only afford to send their sons. So a lot of those women were really cut off from the scriptures in French as it was read every Sunday, and they were hearing it for the first time as Leo read it. And so um, that's really what kept him going. The last time we met him, this is my wife and me, at um, the dedication for the Nugunu Testament, the one that I started out working in, uh, and Leo came to celebrate with the Nugunu com uh, community. This is uh, November 2017, one week before the Yambeta community had celebrated their New Testament translation. So they were rejoicing together, two related languages, separate but related languages, uh, who kind of crossed the finish line together and rejoiced in each other uh, having the Word of God for the first time published in their language. That was the last time we saw him. He uh, was called home to be with the Lord just a few months after that. Um, but the two Yambeta-speaking men that he trained as translators and that I worked with alongside of him, Lazar and Raul, will leave Kon Yambeta tomorrow morning and head down to Yaoundé to begin translating the Old Testament. The Nugunu translation team is going to be there. A lot of other teams are coming together for a whole series of workshops to do the Old Testament, so I'm really excited for them. And I'm sure uh, Leo is smiling from heaven about the progress of the word in his language. Um, so that's a little bit about why we translate the Bible, but how do we do it? How do we go about doing it? Um, sorry, let me skip over here. Let me uh, kind of help us get the picture of how we go about it by reading you some translation examples uh, that are not scriptural examples. These are actually from tourist places in non-English speaking countries around the world where people collected these very interesting translations into English for the benefit of English speaking tourists. So here's one from 
a Polish hotel restaurant menu, salad, a firm's own make, limpid red beet soup with cheesy dumplings in the form of a finger, <laughs> roasted duck let loose, beef rashers beaten up in the country people's fashion. And from the menu of a Swiss restaurant, our wines leave you nothing to hope for. <laughs> I've got a whole page of them, but I'll, I'll end with uh, my favorite from a car rental agency in Tokyo. This is the instruction sheet in their um, rental car. When passenger of foot heave in sight, tootle the horn. <laughs> Trumpet him melodiously at first. But if he still obstacles your passage, then tootle him with vigor. <laughs> okay, those are in English, our language. Uh, why did we laugh? What, what was the problem with those translations? Any thoughts? They're not clear, okay. Too literal, interesting. Yeah, you can kind of picture the translator with his... Japanese-English dictionary there, kind of going word for word, right? Yeah. We don't translate that way. It's never word for word. It's idea for idea, truth for truth, meaning for meaning. Um, who were the people translating in these examples? Non-English speakers, and that's the key. Thank you. So... The translator should always be a mother tongue speaker of the language being translated into, okay? Sorry for the preposition at the end of my sentence. Um, that's the whole key. Mother tongue translators are the key. And so the, the, uh, my role, I should say, here I am back before I started dyeing my hair this color, back in... <laughs> 1992 or so, sitting around the translation table with the Nugunu team. My role was not to be the translator because I learned as much Nugunu as I could, but I was not a mother tongue speaker. My role was an advisor, an exegete, to help them understand the meaning. Now, they could read, they, they had, you know, an array of different versions of the Bible in French that they would consult. Um, but, but they didn't have access to a lot of commentary helps or other things that really help translators uh, dig down and get the meaning, especially stuff like figurative language becomes very difficult to translate. So my role was to advise them, to help them understand the meaning, and then, of course, their role as mother tongue speakers of the language was to put it into good Nugunu. And uh, that's the way we worked together for a number of years, and then they carried on on their own for, uh, to finish their New Testament. So my current role is kind of an expansion of that, but from my home country here in the U.S. Um, I work with a team of others who, like me, have worked in African languages, and we kind of know the structures of, say, Bantu and, and other big language families, and we're writing these verse-by-verse -verse guides in French as a tool for mother tongue Bible translators. So kind of taking what I did sitting around that translation table, putting it in writing for translators in hundreds of other languages in Africa uh, to, to benefit from, to help them understand the meaning so that then they can um, translate it clearly and naturally in their own language. Um, the other end of this process is the checking process. And 
as the translators are, are, are working, they'll draft a chapter, and then they will take it out into the community and read it to other speakers of the language and ask them some key questions. And if there is a misunderstanding somewhere, they'll, they'll think, okay, we need to revise that verse so it's, it's clearer. Um, and then at the end of that whole process, say when a whole book of the, of the New Testament has tra- been translated and it's been tested and revised, then a consultant comes in. So that's the other part of my work, sort of at either end of the process now. And uh, up until COVID, I was uh, traveling a couple times a year to work with different teams in Africa to help them uh, revise their, their uh, scripture and get it ready for publication. And you may wonder if I, get, I actually speak all those African languages. No, I don't. <laughs> but the way it works is uh, they bring in somebody uh, who was not one of the translators and who has never heard it before, and we sit down together and they will read a verse, and that person will translate what he or she heard into French for my benefit. Uh, if there are mistakes, then the mistakes get translated, right? And so as a consultant, I'm looking to, to make sure that everything is clear and I'm following along in the Greek or in the French uh, versions to, to make sure everything is as it should be and to help the team revise whatever needs revising. Um, and by the way, I've had the privilege of, tra- of uh mentoring a number of African uh, consultants as well. And so in countries around the world, more and more uh, national consultants are being trained, and, um, and that's helping to speed up the work. So let's think, uh, oh, by the way, about that picture, that's that same team that you saw in the earlier slide. Uh, about 20 years later, actually, 2014 it was, when uh, the guy there on, on the right in the picture was about to hit the last period on the last word after the last amen in the book of Revelation when we finished checking their whole New Testament and they all breathed a sigh of relief. You can see we had all gotten older by then. Um, but that was a great day for them. And as I mentioned, we uh, had the, the dedication service for that in 2017. So... Let's think about what makes a good translation. That's my son, Brett, by the way, growing up in uh, Ombessa, Cameroon, and that was not a posed picture. He actually crawled over and grabbed that book off the shelf, so I like to say that he cut his teeth on translation principles. (laughs) A good translation, uh, three main characteristics. Uh, A good translation should be accurate, so nothing added to the message and nothing taken away from the message. That seems pretty simple, but we want the new hearers of the language, what we call the target audience, to be able to understand exactly what the original hearers or readers understood. Well, sometimes the original hearers um, were able to, to understand implicit information, what was not expressed explicitly in the text. It was part of their culture, so they knew it. And sometimes that information needs to be made explicit in the written text in order for the new audience to really understand what the original uh, hearers did. So uh, an example of that might be in Luke chapter 13. The Pharisees come to Jesus in Jerusalem. They tell him, you better leave Jerusalem uh, because Herod is going to try to kill you. And Jesus answers like this, go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Uh, 
So he uses the word fox, obviously metaphorical. Herod was not really a little animal. Um, and in their culture, as far as we can ascertain, uh, a fox had pretty much the same uh, connotations as, as, as we apply to it, a sly, crafty animal. And the original hearers would have immediately applied that, that meaning when they heard him call Herod a fox. Okay, he's sly and he's crafty. That's what Jesus is telling us. Well, but how would that come across, though, in a language where either fox, a fox wasn't even known, or had a different meaning? What if the fox in this culture is the king of the animals? Or what if the fox is a cowardly animal? Or who, who knows? Um, so you have to clarify what that metaphor really means. And a, a, a few possibilities would be make the metaphor, the meaning of the metaphor explicit. So go tell Herod, that man who is like a crafty fox, you add a little bit of substance to help the, the hearers understand what the original uh, audience understood. Or you substitute another metaphor, another figure of speech from the, uh, from the target language that has the same meaning. Uh, maybe a hyena or a jackal instead of a fox. Go tell that hyena and so on. Um, or you could just not use figurative language and translate the meaning directly. Uh, go tell that crafty Herod, and so on. So things like that where we have to, in order for the meaning to be fully accurate, we don't, we don't stick with the exact same language as in the original. By the way, that example of Herod reminds me when I was working with the Nuasue uh, translation team in Cameroon. I, uh, they, they were reading part of their text and the word politician came out. And I said, wait a minute, what, what word was that? And turns out the way they say hypocrite in their language <laughs> is politician. Go figure. So secondly, a good translation needs to be clear. Uh, I'm working right now on the, on the translator's notes for the book of Acts. And uh, here's some advice I gave in, in chapter 19, verse 8. It says, Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months. Anybody see a problem that might come up there in translation? Did Paul walk into the synagogue and stay there for three months preaching? Well, he did preach all night one time, and Eutychus fell out the window and died, but... Um, not for three whole months. So part of my advice there is when you translate this verse and test it with, with your uh, audience, make sure that they understand that he went into the, <laughs> into the uh, synagogue for the first time and preached, and then he kept coming back for three months. So, you know, maybe you would say uh, Paul went into the synagogue and preached boldly every Sabbath for the next three months or something like that to make it clear uh, pronouns can often trip people up. Um, sometimes we need to, to just come out and state the person's name where the original has a pronoun just to make it clear who's doing what. And in other languages, maybe you need more pronouns and fewer proper nouns. Uh, a friend or a colleague once told the story, and I can't even remember what language this was, or even what part of the world. But they had translated the uh, creation story from Genesis, and they went to test it. And they read the creation story, and the person listening said, oh, I never realized how many gods there were uh, involved in creating. And he said, no, 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 let me read this again. And he read it again. 
And the guy said, yeah, I counted that time seven gods created uh, the, the, the world and everything in it. And the translator learned after that that in that language, you introduce a character one time by name. And then after that, that character is always referred to with a pronoun. And they have a very complex pronoun system in that language, so people are able naturally to keep track. Um, so every time the word God came in, it was like a new God was being introduced. Uh, and, of course, that was a simple thing to fix. You just say God the first on the first day, and then from then on you use a pronoun. And finally, a good translation is technically difficult. There we go. Whoops. Natural. Um, and, of course, the mother tongue speakers of a language are the ones who judge whether it's natural or not. But sometimes they need a little coaching, a little prompting, because often there's a tendency to stick a little too close to the word order and the, the grammatical structure of the original, and they, they unintentionally uh, are translating in an unnatural way in their own language. It comes out sound, sounding like tootling the horn melodiously or whatever. Um, so sometimes they need to be coached a little on that, and often when I'm hearing them and I'm following along maybe in a French version, I'll say, that sounds almost exactly like the wording in such and such a version. Did you just kind of go word for word, or is that really the way you would say it? And one of the ways to avoid that problem and to kind of guarantee a more natural-sounding translation is to read the passage together in whatever the source language is, French or whatever, close the text, and have them recount it in their own words. Well, you're not going to get it accurate that way, but you're going to get a nice natural flow that way, and you can record it or write it down as they, as they retell it. And then you can go back and open up the text and start filling in the gaps and so on. But at least they've got it in a natural-sounding way right from the start. I want to end with this uh, slide of a man I've worked with very closely. There on your left, Crepin, Sinchime, uh, a, a speaker of Nugunu. He was the one who taught my wife and me his language, Nugunu, way back at the beginning. And I worked very, very closely with him over the years. He led the Nugunu translation team after uh, my family and I returned to the United States. They carried on through the rest of the New Testament. And then I had the privilege of going back and uh, cheering them across the finish line as we worked together to um, check their, uh, their New Testament before it was published. So on the, uh, when I went back in 2017 for the dedication of the Nugunu New Testament, it was scheduled for a Saturday just after Thanksgiving. Um, but no, yes, a Saturday, but the Friday, the day right before the dedication, Crepin had this idea that they were going to do a caravan of cars and motorcycles and pickup trucks around all the uh, Nugunu-speaking region and visit all the main villages. And he had alerted the chiefs in all these villages to gather a crowd at such and such a time when we would come. And um, they had this box of Nugunu New Testaments that they didn't open that day. They had a pickup truck full of traditional drummers with their wooden log, hollow log drums. They had another pickup truck uh, full of young ladies who did traditional dance. And we'd all pull into a village and the drummers would start drumming and the, the girls would jump out of the uh, pickup truck and start doing a traditional dance. And then they would invite everybody to come the next day to the uh, New Testament dedication. What surprised me was the very first 
place we stopped was not a Nugunu-speaking village. It was the village of this man on the right. Sorry, I keep pointing back there. You're seeing it here. Um, the man on the right, Ashil, who is the main translator in Nulibie, a neighboring language. And we stopped in this village because Crepin wanted to encourage him. They were just getting started on their New Testament, and Crepin was inviting them to come the next day, celebrate with the Nugunu-speaking community as a way of saying, one day you're going to be here as well. And Crepin has taken on that role of encouraging groups around him, uh, surrounding language groups in their uh, translation efforts. Here they are praying over the box of Nugunu New Testaments and saying, one day uh, you'll have this too in New Libye. And it makes me think of this verse that I'd like to end on, probably familiar to most of you from Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word, says God. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. That's one of the verses that really keeps me going. I know there's a guarantee that when God's word goes out, he will guarantee the results. We often think of God's word as that bread that feeds the hungry, and it is. It's exactly that. It's food for the hungry. It feeds our souls. But we often miss the fact that it's also seed for the sower, seed for the farmer. And that's what I think of when I see Crepin in this picture, encouraging others to translate God's word into their language. It's multiplying the effects. It's multiplying the kingdom. It's really making disciples. And that's what it's all about. So thank you so much. And uh, if you have questions, I'm happy to talk to you after the service. And do please um, pick up anything you like on the table outside. Thank you. Mm.